My text this morning is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the instruction that it provides. We give you thanks for the gospel that it proclaims. We give you thanks for the chance that your church has to gather together again to work through a text of your word so that once again we might find life in Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, let's remind ourselves of the issue going into our text this morning. It's clear in verses 1 through 3, and I think um, Dan did a really helpful job explaining it last week. Paul says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. So in the words of the text, the issue behind these chapters, chapters 12 through 14, is the Corinthians' ignorance concerning spiritual gifts. And to be clear, their ignorance was probably not limited to spiritual gifts. So if if we were to be um, really literal in the way that verse 1 reads, we would say spiritual things or things of the Spirit in general. In other words, there was a major gap in the Corinthians' understanding, not only about this one issue pertaining to the Spirit, but of the Spirit in general, not just this specific work of the Spirit, but about the, the, uh, the person of the Spirit, first and foremost, and then his work as the natural expression of his person. So I loved that Dan began last week by stepping back even further than the gifts as some kind of an isolated topic, a dry topic to talk about. I love that he stepped back even further to talk first about the person of the Spirit and his work in general before just diving into this extended treatment of the gifts because I do think that it gets behind or gets underneath the issue that Paul now proceeds to address all the way through chapter 14, which is the gifts of the Spirit. And and don't miss the irony of verse 1. Um, You'll see the irony, if you're familiar with the chapters that follow, when you see this word, ignorant, in verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant. You, You may be inclined to assume... But that word means that this was an area where the Corinthians were simply um, lacking knowledge, as if they were just unaware or unexposed to teaching about the spirit or spiritual gifts, because that's how we use the word ignorant most of the time. It's it's something like lacking, um, lacking knowledge. But that's not the only way to use the word. And it's definitely not the way that Paul was using the word here. The irony of his use of this word ignorant to describe the Corinthians' understanding of spiritual things and of spiritual gifts in particular was that the Corinthians would have labeled themselves gladly, confidently. They would have labeled themselves as a church of very spiritually aware people. 
So in their own eyes, they're very attuned to the Spirit and His work among them. The problem was, as Paul describes it in verse 2, that their understanding of the Spirit and everything pertaining to the Spirit was more informed by their former life in paganism than their life in Christ from the Bible. And in, in their case, not just the Bible, but the apostles and the teachers that God had given them in this transitional period. So when you begin to read how their understanding of the Spirit and His work among them was manifesting itself in the church, it is unmistakable that their understanding of the Spirit and His work was corrupted or distorted so much so that they're found doing the same thing in reference to spiritual gifts that they were found doing in reference to the Lord's Supper, as Paul describes it in the chapter before. So just like the Lord's Supper had become an occasion for personal display, for the exaltation of those who were well off, to the neglect of those that had comparatively little, so the gifts of the Spirit among them were manifesting themselves in all kinds of distorted ways to exalt some in the church and neglect or demean others in the church. And I want you to note what Paul says at the end of chapter 11 after he's given them rebuke and instruction and warning in reference to the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 34 of chapter 11, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. As somebody who now spends more time in the classroom than the pulpit, especially in the last year, um, I automatically want to go into teacher mode at this point and just ask you, stop talking and ask you, what do you think about those words there? And let us sort it out together as a class. What do you think he means here? What are the other things he's talking about here? And how does what he says here relate to everything he's just said in reference to the Lord's Supper and everything he's about to say in reference to spiritual gifts? But right now, it's my job to talk. So I'll keep talking. I think he's saying, there's so much more I could say to you. And eventually, I need to say to you, much of it can wait, who knows how long, until I come to you, probably implying, because not everything I could say or that needs to be said has reached a point of urgency. So about these other things, the very real but non-urgent things that eventually need to be addressed, about those things, he says, I will give directions to you when I come. But some things is his point. Specifically, your abuse of the Lord's Supper and the pompous display of the wealthy among you who feast while some hunger at the very supper that the Lord himself ordained. And that the Lord himself 
presides over as the host and that the Lord himself calls his people to and feeds them with the bread of his sacrifice and the blood of his covenant and inseparably over and over with the renewal of the promises that are eternally theirs in him. So the very meal that is instituted by Jesus to humble and unite and renew all who are called to come and exalt only one person present in the room at the table Every time he's saying, among you, church at Corinth, the exalted Christ is nowhere to be found exalted among you because some of you are exalted in his place. While others whom Christ the host has called and saved and united to himself are left feeling like outsiders. Paul's point is that the Lord's Supper had become an occasion for division rather than unity and self-exaltation rather than Christ's exaltation. And in Paul's mind, that couldn't wait any longer. Not another minute, let alone until God would grant him passage to come to them and speak face to face. So he writes about it in chapter 11. And when he writes about it, he goes all the way back to the institution itself. He goes back to the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed. When he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds the important commentary. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in so walking them through this issue this way, he reminds the church at Corinth of the original purpose of the supper. Not for division, not for personal display, not for self-exaltation, but his. Christ's and our unity in him in remembrance of me in remembrance of me you're proclaiming the Lord's death by it until he comes again so the Lord's Supper is given as one ongoing means of the Lord's exaltation in our midst until he comes again and is forever exalted in our midst And it's with that careful rehearsal that his warning for self-examination before partaking becomes really, really serious, doesn't it? There's a reason I've gone back and rehearsed this. When Paul is finished giving the church the instruction that he deems necessary and urgent and decides by the Spirit, to leave the rest until he comes to them, he moves on in chapter 12 to another issue with the same foundational problem that cannot wait to be addressed. Not until another letter, not until he comes to them. 
And the reason he moves directly from the Lord's Supper to spiritual gifts and passes over many things that could be said and should at some point be said was not only because those two issues in particular had reached a level of urgency that could no longer wait, but also because the abuses of both issues in the church at Corinth had the same foundational problem of neglecting the word of the Lord and the same destructive consequence in the church of self-exaltation and self-display by the most outwardly blessed among them in reference to the Lord's Supper in wealth or in reference to spiritual gifts, the people who had the most outwardly praiseworthy gifts among them. So their abuse of the Lord's Supper ran parallel in many ways to their abuse of spiritual gifts, so much so that Paul moves from one to the other and decides in between that many other things can wait. So it's fitting that Paul follows the same approach in reference to spiritual gifts as he did in reference to the Lord's Supper. He reaches all the way back beyond the gifts among them to the beginning, to the gift itself, which I think is what verse 3 is getting at. It's the common confession of everyone whom the Spirit has regenerated. Jesus is Lord. Dan said it well last week. Regeneration is a gift of God. It's a work of grace. It's the initial work of grace in the human heart, resulting in a lifetime of sanctifying grace where the gifts of the Spirit manifest themselves in the church for the common good. And that really is my sermon. If I were to bleed my text into Dan's from last week, here's what I think we have. We have one common confession of the Spirit, Jesus is Lord. We have many diverse manifestations of the Spirit. Verses 4 through 6. And we have one purpose of the Spirit, which is the common good. Dan talked us through the common confession of the Spirit last week. It's my job this week to start us down the road that will continue for a few weeks to come of the diverse manifestations of the Spirit. And to zoom way in just for a moment, I think that Paul intends a much closer connection between verses 3 and 4 than the English word now might naturally imply. It's the first thing you see in verse 4. For example, when you read now concerning spiritual gifts in verse 1, now primarily signals subject change. That's one of the most common uses or things that the word signals. But this now in verse 4 does not signal a subject change like it did in verse 1 from the Lord's Supper to spiritual gifts. This now in verse 4 maintains the connection between verses 3 and 4, but it highlights a contrast. So for the sake of understanding the particular use or nuance of the word now in verse 4, just think of now as but. And you'll understand what he's saying. It's not a subject change. It's a connection with an emphasis on a contrast. The connection is what? It's the Holy Spirit. Our confession that Jesus is Lord in verse 3 is a work of the Spirit, just like verse 
4 and verse 7, gifts and service and activity in the body of Christ is a work of the Spirit. So the Spirit himself is the connection between our confession and our gifts as the author and the power behind them. But there is a clear, important contrast here that Paul wants to bring out. I'll word it this way. There's one confession in and by the Spirit among the people of God, but there is a variety or a diversity of gifts in and by the Spirit of God among the people of God. Is this supposed to be, is, is, is the proper, is this supposed to be our, I struggle with that, like, sorry, grammar people, talk to me about that afterwards. Let me read it again because I have a tendency to, when I think something is important, I say a lot of other words that just minimize the importance of it. So, um, if is should be are, just ignore it, now that I've pointed it out, and you can't ignore it. There's one confession in and by the Spirit among the people of God, Jesus is Lord. But there is or are a variety or a diversity of gifts in and by the Spirit of God among the people of God. That's the contrast. One confession, many gifts. Both by the Spirit. Both among the people of God. I think he starts with the common confession to bring them out of their twisted display of diversity. So he brings them back to unity because on display among them was a a twisted understanding of diversity. Where some are exalted and others demeaned or neglected. So he brings them back to the thing that most basically unifies them in the body of Christ. It's the common confession that Jesus is Lord. It's why they were there. It's why you're here. It's why I'm here. It's why we're friends. And not just casually. But it's why we happily call each other brother and sister and hopefully treat each other that way. Outside of that work of the Spirit, to regenerate our dead and unbelieving hearts through the word of the gospel, to life and faith in Christ, and to produce in us, through us, based upon that internal work, the external, common, glad confession, Jesus is Lord. And to join us together in covenant through that common confession from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different belief systems, to now pledge ourselves to Jesus and to each other in Jesus, to worship Jesus together and to care for each other and to hold each other accountable and to strive for the faith of the gospel to the ends of the earth until Jesus comes together with otherwise perfect strangers outside of this common confession. This work of the Spirit, no way I'm here outside of that miracle. No way. No way I would want to be here outside of that miracle, and no way are you. And no way I'm standing up here doing this, and no way you're sitting out there doing that. Listening to me. An otherwise perfect stranger take 40 minutes of your day off to instruct you from a book that claims to be inspired by God. None of this is happening outside of that first work of grace. 
And the same was ultimately true in the church at Corinth, which is why I think he brings them all the way back to what united them in Christ when God rescued them miraculously from their worship of false gods by the Spirit through the gospel. As Dan pointed out last week, Paul calls them brothers in verse 1. It somewhat surprises me. It seems as divided as they were and as messy as this church was and as ignorant or immature as they seem to be in a number of very critical, urgent areas of the faith, it does seem that they're believers. But it seems equally clear that they've lost sight of the forest, of their unity in Christ and by the Spirit through the confession that bound them together that Jesus is their common Lord for the sake of the tree. Of spiritual gifts. Or for the sake of the trees of gifts and wealth and loyalties. If we were to start to make a list of all the things that Paul says was dividing them. Destroying them from the inside out in 1 Corinthians. And I say all that to say, brothers and sisters, it would be so much easier if Paul didn't call them brothers. To me. Then we could just say... These are unbelievers who've taken over the church at Corinth. Because this kind of stuff doesn't happen to churches made up of believers, so we're safe. But that's not what we see, which means we're not safe. Which means we can get lost as a church in the trees. And any one of us or group of us can and probably will at times get stuck staring too long at one particular tree and begin to think it's the most beautiful or significant in the forest of the faith. That's when division happens. Happens all the time. Brothers and sisters, loyalties, liberties, ordinances, gifts. We could start our own list, I'm sure, from your experience, couldn't we? love this sentence by a commentator named Preben Vong. Paul's argument functionally works to denounce the social divisions that exist outside the church as shameful inside the Christian community. Shameful. So before Paul addresses the tree of spiritual gifts, which necessarily includes conversation about diversity, he backs way up or he zooms way out to get a renewed glimpse of the forest itself to emphasize their unity in Christ and by the Spirit. And only then does he address the diverse ways in which the Spirit works among them. And if you have... um, If you have an eye to organization and grammar and detail when you're reading the word, verses 4 to 7 probably come alive to you every time you read them because there's a lot of just unmistakable parallelism in the text. I'll point out some of it. You have the conjunctions. He's organizing the text. Now, but, and, but, and, but, now, It's a structure that keeps everything connected by comparisons and contrast. And the nows serve as hinge words that on the one hand block off these verses as a distinct, complete thought. But they also keep the doors open to what comes before and to what comes after. Reminding us that while this is a distinct, complete 
thought worthy to become the focus of a Sunday sermon. These verses are not random, nor are they out of place. Or you can highlight the repetition in the text. Varieties, same, varieties, same, varieties, same. It's probably the most obvious parallelism that jumps out to you in the text. And the purpose it serves is to maintain the unity from where he's been. Same spirit, same Lord, same God. But it also sets the tone for where he's coming, which is where where he's going, which is variety or diversity. The same spirit, same Lord, same God that produced The same confession among us that unifies us as a body also produces among us a diversity of, he says, gifts, service, and activities, which is another way we could break down the parallelism. Gifts, spirit, service, Lord, activities, God. And I don't think the point there is to force some kind of exclusive relationship between gifts and spirit and service and Jesus and activities with the Father. And I say that because it's all attributed to the Spirit in the verses and chapters that follow. The bigger point, the bigger purpose this structure ultimately serves is to ground the diversity of spiritual life among them in the unity of the Trinity. Let me say that again, but let me say it um, differently. There is structure here and parallelism here that does more than organize and show relationships between phrases. Paul is writing to a church divided over many things. And one of the things they were divided over was their diversity of gifts and service and activity. Some people were being exalted. Others were being neglected. Some thought they had the most important gifts. Those were likely the exalted ones among them. Others were neglected or demeaned and led to believe that they were somehow missing out because their gifts didn't have the same wow, the same outward, public, praiseworthy appeal. So Paul is doing very slow, very methodical work to build a case, even through things like literary features, to ground the undeniable diversity among them, not in them, not in accident, not in mistake, not in unfortunate randomness, but in the person of God. And not just God in general, but again, it's a very careful, methodical, linguistic, theological effort to ground their undeniable diversity in a God that is three in one. Three distinct persons in one Godhead. I think the incredible reality he's reminding them of, and that we would do well to remember always, is that what God is doing in the church in the church at Corinth in the first century and in Christ fellowship in the 21st century is not trial and error or randomness or meaninglessness or making it up as he goes. What he was doing there among them that they needed to see more than anything else and what he's doing here among us that we need to see perhaps high in the list, if not more than anything else, is doing what he promised to do. On the one hand, he's building his church. I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But he's doing so in such a way that reveals something. There's purpose behind it. And it coincides with 
everything that was his stated purpose from the beginning. To manifest himself to the world, his nature, his work. And let me pause there for a second and just make clear that that's so much more than just a cool idea or a deep theological connection to take with you and store it up in your head knowledge. Previn Vong, again, captures the significance better than I could, so I'll let him speak. The church turned the diversity of gifts granted by God's Spirit into an opportunity for pride rather than an, rather than an enablement to serve. And here's, here's the few sentences that um, really struck me. Not only does it violate God's intentions, which is typically where we go, it violates God's intentions. It violates his very nature. The unity of the three persons in the Godhead militates against even the notion that diversity can give grounds for preeminence. That's a strong paragraph. So to turn, which means to distort or corrupt the purpose of God in the distribution of gifts and service and activities into an opportunity for your own exaltation over other people and over Christ himself, the exalted Lord, not only violates God's intentions in the church, as will become illustrated so clearly as Paul develops the imagery of a body where each member serves the others and is humbly dependent on the others. And not only violates that intention, but it violates the very nature of God as well because you portray the Trinity as not only diverse in roles and responsibilities, but divided in essence or in nature. And that's serious. In other words, in much the same way that our, that our children develop an understanding of the nature of God as Father through the way they observe their earthly fathers. And that reflection will contribute either to their loving Him and trusting Him and resting safe in His care or their wanting nothing to do with Him. So Paul seems to be communicating that the church is either projecting or reflecting an image of God who is three distinct persons subsisting within one divine nature, distinct and diverse in their roles and relationships with each other and for our redemption, but absolutely co-equal in essence and purpose. Either that or we're projecting a three-in-one subsisting in a rivalry. And jockeying, with, jockeying within himself for preeminence. Make no mistake, there is distinction within the Trinity. But there is no rivalry. There is eternal joy. Eternal love. Eternal mutual service and affection. All for one purpose. Glory. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. This is distinction. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. So the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. So the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. That's distinction. Here's unity. But the Father is in the Son. And the Son is in the Father. Likewise, the Father is in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is in the Father. Likewise, 
The Son is in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is in the Son. Concerning purpose, listen to this beautiful paragraph by Gregory of Nyssa all all the way back in the 4th century on what he calls um, the revolving circle of glory within the Trinity. The Son is glorified by the Spirit. The Father is glorified by the Son. Again, the Son has His glory from the Father, and the only begotten thus becomes the glory of the Spirit. In like manner, again, faith completes the circle and glorifies the Son by means of the Spirit and the Father by means of the Son. One purpose. And His glory in the church, I think what Paul is Ultimately saying his glory in the church is not only seen in an accurate gospel being preached, but in a body happily, humbly functioning as many parts, yet one. Those words are lifted directly out of 1 Corinthians 12, by the way, just so you know, I'm not grasping at nothing to force Connections that aren't there. Christ, the head of the body, is exalted when the many diverse members of the body function according to the sovereign arrangement of God in the power of the Spirit. And when Christ is exalted in the church by the power of the Spirit and the Father is glorified and the purpose of God is fulfilled and on display and His people are found worshiping and serving and as Paul says later in the chapter, united. Using their gifts to care for one another, suffering together and rejoicing together. And I think that's what Paul means by this term that kind of captures the theme of our sermon this morning. The common good. I don't think that phrase is some vague generality. I think that is the purpose of among us of a God who, according to verses 4 through 6, grants a diversity of gifts and service and activity. And by attributing it all to himself, he not only removes any occasion for using the gifts for self-exaltation, but to borrow imagery from D.A. Carson, he flattens the distinctions so that nobody could use them as leverage for preeminence over other people. He flattens the distinctions between supernatural gifts and service, mundane service, in all of our activity. They're not given for self-exaltation or self-satisfaction, but for the exaltation of Christ in our hearts, for the glory of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, by these many means of His good grace. And I think that's how the Spirit is manifest or revealed among the people of God when they use their gifts and serve and act by His power with the motive and toward the hope of glory. Meaning Christ exalted in and among them and in Christ exalted the Father and the Spirit glorified and the revolving circle of glory within the Trinity not only continues but it's on display. It's on display here when that happens. 
And we're found not divided and squabbling and jockeying for recognition and lobbying for praise, but we're found united and worshiping and manifesting to the world an invisible kingdom that is breaking into the visible kingdoms of this world and calling out the inhabitants of the one to become part of the other. Isn't that what you want to be? Now, if you're just dying to get to the list of gifts or delve into the controversy of the gifts, our our pace these first two weeks may be driving you crazy. But I hope two weeks in you are at least beginning to understand that there's something bigger at stake. And that is violating the intention and the nature of God or reflecting the intention and the nature of God. For the glory of his name and for the common good of Christ formed in his people. And for the calling of outsiders in our community and in our world into this visible revealing of an invisible kingdom that is breaking into the kingdoms of this world and one day will be visibly, eternally exalted over all. But here is what Paul has done. Very slowly, very methodically, theologically, what's he done? He set us all on level ground. Whatever the gifts are, that he hasn't even mentioned yet. Whatever the gifts are by means of a list, I know already that I cannot claim any credit whatsoever, nor can I claim preeminence over anyone else because of any distinction between us in our gifts. So he's leveled the playing field, and he's brought us back to our unity by means of a common experience of this miraculous gift of regeneration by the Spirit. Resulting in our common confession of Jesus as Lord. And make no mistake, he has assured each of us, according to verse 4, that the sovereign spirit has gifted each of us individually according to his will. So that, according to verse 5, we might use those gifts to serve each other humbly in the diversity of all our activity, according to verse 6, by his power, for his glory, And for the common good of Christ formed in us and others called to Christ through us, according to verse 7. And I love it because before we can even begin to start thinking, what are my gifts? Do I fit where I am? Such a self-centered question, brothers and sisters. And am I being used appropriately according to my gifts? And recognize for my contribution and my giftedness. Before we can even get there. Go there. Paul slows us way down. And reminds us that together we're part of something so much bigger. Than any one of us. But that is also for the good of every one of us. We're so much bigger. We're we're part of something so much bigger than any one of us. But something that is designed for the good of every one of us. So rest assured, brothers and sisters, you are who you are by sovereign grace, and you are where you are by sovereign grace, and you're caught up together with others in a work of sovereign grace where God has you in mind so that you're free to have him in mind as you serve others in his name. Is that not liberating? So my instruction to you is go forth and serve. 
Go forth and selflessly, sacrificially, humbly use your gifts and serve. And serve together and serve each other and serve your community and serve your world and serve in the name of the exalted Son for the glory of the Father and by the power of the Spirit. May our glorious triune God be on display here among us and keep calling. Keep calling us and keep calling others from the kingdoms of this world into the kingdoms of our kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And to that end, I will now pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. Thank you for your kindness to give us your word and give us your spirit and to sanctify us. To fulfill your promise to complete in us the work that you've begun. So continue that work until its completion according to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name.